The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. I hope everybody's doing well today. Um, You might have some young people that are off at camp today and uh, hopefully you're praying for them. But I wanna pray real quick as we jump into scripture um, for our young people as well as for the words. So let's pray for a moment. God, thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness. We do pray for our young people, those that are junior high, senior high, for the leaders, volunteers, the team that's off at camp right now. Bless them, surround them. And it's our prayer for our young people to know you, to have great memories of connecting with each other and and having a great time. We just pray your blessing over the rest of what happens at camp today. We pray they will return safely. And for all of us, God, that have kids that are part of it, that your Holy Spirit would work deeply and wonderfully, that their faith continues to become their own. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I I had put out on social media that today we are jumping into um, basically two-thirds of the Old Testament, and I've got about 30 minutes, so here goes nothing, but um, last week we took on the Pentateuch. Uh, That's a long way of basically talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and um, basically we pick pick up from where we left off last week. Moses has passed away. Um, You've probably seen little glimpses. If you've read those books, Moses is gone, but Joshua Joshua appears in certain parts. Well, Joshua is the next leader of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has left captivity in Egypt. They've wandered in the desert. God has said, I have a land for you. Here's where you need to go. He spells it out. But because of their rebellion, they don't get there during Moses' lifetime. So when Moses passes away, the baton is passed to Joshua. When you open up the book of Joshua... Um, where you land is that Joshua was in charge and it basically moves right on. Literally, God says to Joshua, Moses is now gone. You're the leader. I want you to pick up and I want you to head into the promised land, cross the Jordan. A miracle is performed there similar to the Red Sea where the water of the river is stopped upstream and they cross through the Jordan and that's the point where they enter into the promised land. It's pretty significant. But throughout the book of Joshua then, it's the conquest. It's them taking out certain nations, dealing with idolatry and all of that stuff. But also the book of Joshua is stories of them not seeking God like they should have, them making agreements they shouldn't have made with certain nations and certain problems that ensue because of it. But but that's kind of the general idea of what Joshua is. It's them getting into the promised land that God had told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise. Now they're getting into the establishment of the promise. You might remember, or some of you that have been around uh, faith in Jesus for a while might have this crocheted on a pillow or a plaque on your wall, but at the end of Joshua, there's a key verse that says this. I'm gonna read two verses. The first one might not seem familiar. The second one might. It says this, Joshua, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, uh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors that served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." And so as you get to the end of Joshua, they've, they've taken out certain people groups. They're beginning to enter, not enter, they're beginning to establish themselves in the promised land. This is a very young nation. They were just given certain parameters and laws by Moses, the generation before this. But when you get to the end of Joshua, they haven't fully taken over the promised land. They haven't fully established themselves as a nation. So Joshua passes away. And then you have this book we call Judges. Now, Judges is a really rough book. It's kind of the Wild West 
rest of Israel. And the reason I say that is because throughout Judges, you have this issue of rebellion because what God had said originally was, I want this nation, Israel, to be a theocracy, which literally means ruled by me, ruled by God, not by people. And yet, God had said to Moses, there's a, there's a time coming when the people of Israel will want to have a king, but I'm telling you that's not the greatest idea. What God designed originally was a theocracy. When you get into judges, because they didn't have certain key leaders rise up and lead the people like Joshua or Moses to continue establishing the nation, they got themselves in all kinds of trouble. The trouble looked like this. They would start worshiping the gods of these other nations. They would suffer the consequences because God had said over and over, don't worship the gods of these other nations or you'll end up being punished and, and persecution will come and, and there will be na nations that come and try to take you over. That's exactly what happens throughout Judges. It's this rebellion and idol worship and these nations come in and not only influence but try to take them over and it's basically they're living tribally. While there's different tribes within the nation of Israel, there is the nation. They're never united in Judges and it gets so bad that 12 different times throughout the book of Judges, it's idolatry and rebellion and, and, and persecution and problems followed by repentance where God will raise up a judge to rescue them. That's the idea of Judges. And over and over it happens. In fact, there's different judges you might have heard of. There's a gal named Deborah, who's one of the judges. There's a guy named Gideon. You might recognize that story. Gideon at one point becomes one of the judges. There's a whole list of them. But the most famous judge that we see in the book of Judges is a guy named Samson. Samson was strong and handsome and had long flowing hair, took a Nazarite vow, all this stuff. But Samson's heart continually is given to females. He's got a problem. And uh, there's a gal named Delilah. You've heard of Samson. And then Delilah, hey there, Delilah. Anyways, um, so, but, but really, he ends up rescuing Israel actually a couple of different times, but in the end, because of his rebellion, idolatry problem with females, um, he ends up in captivity. It's just a mess. Here's the, here's the disaster of the nation. The book of Judges ends with this verse, and it appears a few different times in various forms, but here's what it says. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's kind of the epitome of the book of Judges. They just kind of did what they did and certain tribes were unified with each other, but not with all of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there was still tribalism. God wanted to establish them as a nation, but it doesn't go well. At the end of Judges, it literally says, everyone did as they saw fit. And then you get to Samuel. There's first and second Samuel. First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Now, when you open Samuel, it starts with Elkanah and Hannah and they're uh, married and they can't have kids. And Hannah says, I wanna have a kid. Please, Lord, bless me. And God says, okay, you'll have a kid. And a year later, they have a child. They name him Samuel. He's raised in the temple and he learns to serve God. He has this unique relationship with God where he really can hear the voice of God. Samuel technically is raised up as a judge that redeems or rescues Israel for a period, but he has such respect because of his reverence, reverence for God that the people look to him for what God is saying to them as a nation. And finally, because of kind of the tribalism and the, the issues that the nation of Israel has, they agree together what we want is a king. And Samuel says, you were warned way back when a king is not a, is not a good idea. God wants to rule you and, and you should follow him. And they're like, no, 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 but we want a king. And God says to Samuel, give them a king. 
And in the end, what happens is that, that, you know, just like God had said to Moses, a king is gonna rise up, but if you want a king, then he's gonna have all kinds of money, he's gonna tax you, he's gonna have all kinds of horses and all this stuff. A king is a king, and that's how life goes, and you'll all be subject to this king. They say, that's what we want. So um, Samuel anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul is head and shoulders taller than everyone else and super handsome and charismatic, and he becomes king. He's the first king of Israel. The nation rejoices, and so they have their first king. In the beginning, Saul is a pretty good king. He does a couple of the right things. They're amazed at his conquest, his ability to lead. But then Saul grows impatient as a king, where at one point Samuel says, I'll meet you in a certain place, and we'll sacrifice to the Lord of heaven, and God is gonna show us what to do next. And Saul, because he's waiting for Samuel, doesn't agree. Well, he agrees, but he doesn't abide by what he's supposed to, and he burns sacrifices that only a priests were meant to do, which would be what Samuel was supposed to do. And Samuel shows up and goes, Saul, what have you done? You did what you weren't supposed to do. And there's a little window of scripture that's peculiar, but it says at that point, God regretted that he put Saul in the role of king. And, and then what happens is Samuel is then sent to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. Anybody know who that's going to be? Yeah, David. So Samuel shows up at Jesse's house. He says, bring me all your sons, line them up. God's got a king here somewhere. Don't tell anybody because Saul's already on the throne, but we need to do this. And so he gets out the anointing oil as a ceremonial moment. They're gonna have a meal together and he's gonna anoint a new king. All the brothers line up. He goes to anoint a king and God says, it's not that one, it's not that one, that one, that one, or that one, it's none of them. And Samuel's like, well, wait a minute. Is there like another kid? And he's like, oh, I have the youngest, but he's out tending sheep. He's just a little runt, basically. And Samuel says, have him brought in. We won't eat. We won't continue with the ceremony until he shows up. David shows up and God says, that's the next king, which is unusual because remember, typically back in that day and even historically, kings come from the, the, the current lineage. And so it's unusual there, but it's also unusual because it's not the oldest son of Jesse, it's the youngest. So David is anointed king, but 14 years go by before David becomes king. During those 14 years, David starts out where Saul goes, okay, this David guy's charismatic. He's a great worship leader. You know, he, he, um, Saul likes him a lot. He's invited into his court to play for him, and he ends up being a great military leader. And Saul's like, this is amazing, until people start saying, wow, David's a better leader than Saul. And Saul's like, wait a second, that's not cool. And so things change with Saul and Saul tries to kill David multiple times. At one point, even in his own home, he like tries to throw spears at him and David's like, why are you doing this? Anyway, um, so David is on the run as you continue through 1 Samuel and, and at one point, David's in a cave with his men hiding from Saul and Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. And David's men are like, this is your moment. Kill him and you'll be king. And David's like, no, 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 no. You don't lay a hand on God's anointed. I'm gonna let God take care of that. How dare we think we could stand in the place of God? Which again, there's great lessons about God's sovereignty in this, but it's amazing. Now, what happens is, um, Saul, Saul ends up, he's at war with the Philistines at different times. And to make a long story short, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and Jonathan, his son, are in a battle with the Philistines and Saul is killed. And Jonathan is killed and David is anointed as the new king. There was promises and all this stuff. Here's what's profound about this, okay? Little time out. In the midst of this kind of history, 
During the period of the judges, there's a book we call Ruth. Anybody ever read the book of Ruth? If you've read the book of Ruth, that's where it fits. What's profound about the book of Ruth is there's not talk about God, sovereign, God almighty, all that stuff. It's a practical book of a gal named Ruth and she's a widow and a lady named Naomi and and this whole picture. In the end, Ruth marries a guy named Boaz and the picture is, or the theme of that book is that God is a faithful redeemer. Okay, it's an incredible book. But here's the deal. Ruth and Boaz, after they're married, give birth to a guy named Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. That's why Ruth is a profound book because you wanna talk about God's sovereignty that you couldn't just put these pieces together automatically. God does something amazing. And so Ruth is the great, great grandmother of King David. So a little time out there, there's Ruth. Okay, let's keep going. You with me here? At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is killed. And as you open 2 Samuel, David is anointed as the new king. But the nation of Israel has yet to fully unite around one king. And you still have kind of the southern tribes, which are basically called Judah, and the northern tribes, which are basically called Israel, and they haven't united yet, and there's still this fighting thing about who should be the next king, because shouldn't it be one of Saul's sons? And they're like, no, no, Samuel said something else. It needs to be David. Judah agrees. The southern tribes agree that David should be king, so they anoint him king. And they're like, this is great. The northern northern kingdom doesn't agree right away. To keep a long story short, at one point, they finally come along and go, okay, David should be our king too. They have a giant celebration, and this is the first time the young nation is finally united under one king. These are the glory days of Israel. David is king. Things are awesome. They establish themselves. They deal with rebellion nations that try to bring in idolatry and it's an incredible time but it doesn't last okay what happens is David when he's supposed to be out to war during a certain season in the spring when kings were out to war was at home and he's hanging out on the roof of his palace and he's walking around and he glances over into the city a little ways and he sees a gal bathing on a rooftop everybody say "Uh uh-oh we got a problem okay and and so David takes a long look at this gal. He gets like, wow, that's exciting. And he decides they should bathe together to keep it short. She's married. David tries to cover, well, she's married. Uh, They they do what they shouldn't do. They have an affair. A little while later, she comes to David or she brings reports saying, I'm pregnant and it's yours. And so Maury Povich shows up and then they have this, you know, (laughs) so you are the the father. Um, So anyway, that that didn't happen. But anyway, um, so, so here's, David, and he's like, oh no, well, here's how we're gonna cover this up. We're gonna bring her husband in and and he's gonna have some relations with her and then we'll just act like it's his kid. And that's David's solution, right? He comes home from war by invitation of the king and and he refuses to go in to hang out with his wife and, and be intimate because he's supposed to be at war and he has more character than David does. And so David's like, no, 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 he needs to do this and he won't do it. So he leaves back off to the battlefield and David basically says, have him head to the front lines, pull back the troops and make sure he gets killed. This is David. That's exactly what happens. He thinks he gets away with it. He kind of goes on with life and Nathan the prophet shows up and basically tells a short story of a guy with all kinds of animals that's having a party. And while you have all these animals that you could sacrifice and and you could have this party, you take your neighbor's one animal that he has and he lives in poverty. And, and, and he doesn't say that, he basically tells that story and, and Nathan says, what should happen to a guy like that? And David says, he needs to, he needs to pay the price. 
off with his head, you know? And, And Nathan says, you're the man. You have everything. You're the king. You have all this stuff. And yet here's what you did to a guy who just loved his wife well. How dare you? And that's where Psalm 51 comes from. Created me a clean heart. David repents, but he suffers the consequences. And from, from there on out, as you continue through 2 Samuel, what you see is this infighting between the family. And there's incest. And there's just kind of a mess that happens. And Absalom later on rises up as David is aging and says, I'm gonna be the next king. And yet what God had said through Nathan the prophet even was that Solomon would be the next king, not Absalom, even though Absalom was the firstborn. Absalom had a wicked heart and God's like, it is not him. So there's a mess throughout the rest of of 2 Samuel and and David passes away and then Solomon becomes the next king. I'm keeping this really short. Becomes the next king of Israel. And again, these are still the glory days in that during Solomon's reign, he built the temple. He built the final palace for the king. The temple uh, sacrifice and the ceremony from the beginning was an amazing event and all of the nation of Israel rejoiced and there was a period of peace and Solomon reigned from 971 BC to 931 BC for 40 years. And once again, this is the pinnacle of of, of the nation of Israel here. Now, keep in mind a couple of things, and then we'll continue on. This is God's promise to Abraham. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, and I'm gonna bless you, and your nation will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. It's gonna be amazing, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. And they see God throughout as they look back on their history. They see God's faithfulness. They see God get them out of Egypt and establish them uh, you know, as a nation with laws from Sinai, even though they're wandering in the desert. And then they get into the promised land under Joshua. And while they're not unified, they see the pieces of the nation coming together, even though they're young and things are getting better and better. And then they anoint a king and, and that's okay, but David comes along, unites the nation, Solomon for 40 years, a time of peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel. God is so faithful. The flame of God's spirit is incredible and people marvel at how awesome it is. God is so faithful. And then Solomon passes away as you get into first and second Kings. And when Solomon passes away, there's this battle between his sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And immediately from the point that Solomon passes away, the nation splits again. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern is Israel, southern is Judah. And there's infighting between the kings, but there's also a couple of other um, powers at play within world history at this point. The Assyrian empire comes along and begins to persecute Israel followed by then the Babylonian empire. And we'll get to that in a minute, okay? So you have these kings of Israel and kings of Judah because they've split. And little by little, what you see when you read first and second Kings is this king was the king of Israel and they did what was good in the sight of the Lord. And they'll tell some of their story or it'll say they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they'll tell their story. And there's kings of Israel and Judah and they're either good or bad, but here's what happens. For a period of, of, of just about uh, 200 and... Uh, where is it in my notes? For a period of about 209 years after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel exists, but the kings are more wicked than Judah. And after 209 years, they get sacked by the Assyrian empire and they're done. And then you only have the, the Southern kingdom of Judah. And they last from the death of Solomon, 300, about 325 years until as they had been told, and we'll get to that in a minute, if you continue in idolatry, it's not gonna go well for you. So the, the um, Northern Kingdom is conquered in 722 BC, okay? I know this is a lot. 
The southern kingdom lasts longer, but they're conquered from 605 to 586. And instead of just simply being conquered, they actually are sent off in exile. And this is exactly what the prophets had told them would happen. If you don't follow me, if you continue to give yourself to idolatry, if you continue to allow these things here, you're going to be taken over. The northern kingdom was basically snuffed out. But after the Assyrian Empire came the Babylonian Empire in world history. And the Babylonian Empire is the one who took captives in groups from 605 to 586 BC, took them in groups to Babylon. And that's where if you've ever read the book of Daniel, you might remember that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all taken to Babylon because here's what they did. Babylon came in and said, okay, we have some smart, educated, well-to-do people that could probably help us. And then we have everyone else that's poor and whatever else. And they'll just exist in poverty. But those that have some promise, we're gonna bring them into the palace. We're gonna train them up. They're gonna help us lead this nation. That's where Daniel comes from. That's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come from. And they write about being captive in Babylon. But here's what's unique. Sorry, here's what's unique about Daniel. Daniel served during the Babylonian Empire and also ended up in exile um, in, in the Persian Empire under Cyrus because first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Persian Empire came to power and Babylon kind of faded away. But what's cool is when you look at, at biblical history, and scriptural history, and you look at world history, you see how these things all play together, okay? So by the end of, by the time you get to 586 BC, Babylon comes in and they destroy the temple and they, they take captive the nation of Israel. Some of the poor were allowed to stay there and just farm and do what they do, but many of them were taken into exile in Babylon. So this is now where you get the prophetic books. Okay, I know this is a lot, you guys. This is where you get the prophetic books. I spent a, a huge chunk of time this week putting my own chart together. And I know none of you can see this and it doesn't matter to you. One of the problems that I have when you look at the Bible is when you get to the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, Lamed, all this stuff is that what you see is these prophets and there's the major prophets who wrote a lot and, 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 and prophesied over a longer period of time and the minor prophets who didn't write as much and, and didn't prophesy during such a long period of time, but they're not chronological. So I'm gonna try to help you understand a little bit where these prophets fit. Because most of the time, when you and I read the Bible and we open up to any one of the prophets, it's just that somehow God is mad and people are gonna be punished, right? But that's not what's going on exactly. What's going on in most of the prophetic books is that, that God is warning them, don't go this route of idolatry, don't go this route of breaking our covenant or else you'll suffer the consequences. Now, not that you should write this down, but let me put them in chronological order and explain a few things for you. The first prophets in chronological order in, in Israel's history were Amos, Hosea, Jonah, Isaiah, and Micah. And most of them prophesied to the nation of Israel, warning them to not get into idolatry or they would suffer the consequences. How many of you guys have heard of Jonah? How many of you guys know what Jonah's famous for? A whale. Okay, right? But the deal was this. Jonah was sent to where? Nineveh. Everybody say Nineveh. Does anybody know what Nineveh was? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian empire that was persecuting Israel. This is how it fits. Otherwise you just go, what is that about? 
No, no, it's because God was saying to, to the Ninevites, you need to tell them to repent of what they're doing because their idolatry is infecting the nation of Israel. And eventually, if Israel's not careful, they will be taken over by Nineveh and the Assyrian empire. And Jonah's like, I don't like Ninevites, I'm going another way. That's kind of the story and how it fits. So, so Jonah was a prophet to the Ninevites, but as a warning to Israel, okay? So once these prophets, Amos, Hosea, Jonah, Isaiah, and Micah, when they're on the scene, they're prophesying to Israel in particular. But here's what happens. In 722 BC, Israel is snuffed out. The rest of the prophets, almost all of the rest of the prophets are prophesying towards Judah. So again, Israel doesn't exist. Now it's Judah's turn. And God in the same way, and I'll just read it real quick, the prophets Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Obadiah are prophesying to Judah. Don't do this. Don't go that route. Don't you see, and you'll see this in the wording, don't you see what has happened to your brothers in the north? Don't you realize that they're gone and what they did is the path you're following? But this fits into the books of first, but in particular, second Kings, where when it says there's an evil king, there's a prophet that comes along and says, don't give into idolatry. That's how they constantly are fitting together. But they don't listen. And so, as I already said, they were taken into exile. When they're exiled, Jeremiah had said, you're going to be exiled for a period of time and then you'll be allowed to come back. And that's exactly what happens. So those prophets were prophesying specifically towards Judah, challenging them towards repentance and their covenant with God. When they're brought back from exile, that's where you get Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, okay? So I know these aren't in order. So you got Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. We'll talk about Chronicles in, in a minute here, if I can get to it. Help me, Lord. Um, but, but once they come back from exile, that's where Ezra fits in and Nehemiah. Ezra came in and, and, and helped them during their exile they, or, or after they were allowed back from exile to be reestablished as a nation of Israel in Jerusalem. And his heart is broken over the state of the nation, but he tries to help them renew the covenant. And that's where, if this helps at all, that's where you get Haggai and Zechariah as prophets. They come along later and they prophesy to the Jews that came back from exile to Jerusalem. That may not help you a ton, but that's where they fit. And they're trying to encourage the nation that God is still faithful and all this stuff. And of course they struggle. And then Nehemiah comes along a little bit after, kind of during, but after Ezra. And he's actually called governor and he's given certain letters to help rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple and establish the nation once again. But they're under Persian control. They're not their own nation. They're under Persian control, but they get to reestablish Jerusalem. And, and that's kind of what happens. And then finally, you get Malachi. And Malachi is, is the, the most current prophet to date as far as from distance from us in history. And Malachi prophesied after they were brought back from exile because the nation was basically living in kind of a depression and a disillusionment. And his call over and over is, you guys, we've gotta keep to our covenant. You guys, we've gotta, we've gotta obey these things God has asked us to do. We've gotta be careful of our marriages. We've gotta walk out generosity. We've gotta be people of grace. And, and, and he, he talks about these things. And, and the people of Israel, again, they're, 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 they're not, the glory days are long gone. They remember, but they weep and mourn over what used to be, but what isn't anymore. 
And, and when Malachi's done, that's the end of the Old Testament and there's 400 years of silence. Now, let me real quick fit in First and Second Chronicles. If you've ever read First and Second Chronicles and you've ever noticed, you probably haven't, but if you have, there are certain chapters that follow verbatim things that are said in Samuel and Kings. And the reason is because somebody around the time or even after the time of Malachi put together the pieces of Israel's history as a reminder. So what you read in First and Second Chronicles um, uh, uh, duplicates what you read in Samuel and Kings. But the reason is somebody came along later and, and tried to sort of paraphrase and put together the more important pieces they felt to remind Israel that during the waiting time of them under occupation in Persia and dealing with the disillusionment of the temple not being what it was and going through the motions of obedience but disobedience Obedience, the Chronicles were written. And that's how they all fit together. So we just went through pretty much all of it. Okay, here's the deal. The reason I bring all of this up is twofold. One, because I think it's important for us to understand. There's way more to it, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks as far as prophecy and future. Joel, Daniel, Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, the Messiah coming along and the gospels. We're gonna talk about all that. That's, that's profound and amazing. But here's what I wanna hone in on for a couple moments today. There, there's something incredible when you look at what's going on with Israel and God's faithfulness. Because as I took to studying this and, and literally gave my heart to, to all the details that I could for this message, here's what I noticed. And I said it a little bit earlier. But for a while, what you see is God's faithfulness as the nation starts taking shape, as they get out of Egypt and captivity and Sinai and the law and going, it's coming together and Moses has led them out and then they're stuck in the desert and it's challenging. But then they cross the Jordan River into the promised land and Joshua's leading them and they're going, we're getting there. And you get to the end of Joshua and while it's kind of messy, you can see the promise still happening. And you get into Judges and it's super, super, super messy. But even still, you can see little glimmer of hope in God's faithfulness because he continues to rescue them every single time they repent. And at the end of it, it is an absolute disaster, but Samuel comes along as the final judge and prophet and priest in the nation of Israel. They want a king, they get a king. They, they kind of unite around Saul, but when David comes along, they fully unite Northern and Southern. And like I said earlier, that's the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. That, that's the, the, the fire's burning hot. God is so faithful. And then you see Solomon and it's peace and it's incredible. And you can marvel at how good God is. But then from there, it all goes south. And here's what I wanna say. What, what, what was a flame going crazy and their hearts were burning going, God, you're so good, became an ember of where is God? And where is his faithfulness? What, what, what are we even doing? I mean, they constantly began to question what was going on because again, the flame wasn't burning anymore. At certain points, it was barely an ember. And what's hard for you and I, if you know scripture at all, is this. You go, yeah, but the gospels are coming. Yeah, but there's, there, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're getting there. They didn't know that. And yet, one of the things I love is that what you see when you do a flyover view like I just did, what you see is, yes, the drama of scripture, but what you see is God's amazing faithfulness. What you see is even in the midst of barely an ember glowing, some of you guys go camping and you light a fire at night and you cook over it and you enjoy it and you do s'mores around it and it's awesome and it's raging and it's hot and you gotta back off and some of your shoes got melted. And then you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and what do you typically do? You stoke the fire. 
You get out the poker and you move some things around, you blow on it a little bit, you add some kindling or even some paper, some logs, you blow on it, and and a little while later, the flame's glowing again. The flame's burning. And the reason I go through the motions of all of this, and and I wanna say this is, for Israel, at that point during Malachi and Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah, it was barely an ember. But what I love is for you and I, we have the advantage of looking back and going, yeah, but God's still faithful because look what happened. And I say it to remind you, I don't know where you're at and you go, my flame is hot. I'm passionate about Jesus and things are great. Or you go, you know, it's, (laughs) I'm struggling, it's an ember. And I say that because it's part of the history of God's people. But it's something that you and I can be familiar with because it's a struggle in our lifetimes too. There are plenty of days where you go, man, my passion's hot, I'm good. And there, there, there are days where you go, Lord, for real, are you even, like, do you care? But God is so, so, so faithful. And to me, it's such a beautiful picture of who he is in our lives today. It matters. And for some of you that, that walk in, you're kicking the tires of this religion thing, or a lot of people talk about, well, the Bible or the scriptures, oh, it's just some old book or something. And, and they, they, they make up all kinds of weird theories about where it came from. It's profound. And it parallels and dovetails into world history. And I'll just say this as a little bonus, but the more they excavate and the more artifacts and things they find, the more it validates what's going on in here. When they find names of of certain kings and and certain people that existed, they find the ways in in an agrarian society that they lived and and certain pieces of of artifacts. That that goes right along with what's being said. It's amazing, Dead Sea Scrolls and and all the stuff that's found in caves in Qumran, all this stuff is incredible. It's not just a book, it's an incredible miracle that this could even be put together. I can't wait to get to the New Testament. But I say all that to remind us it's a story of God's faithfulness to me and it ought to be a story of God's faithfulness to you. He doesn't give up. And sure, sometimes it's just an ember, but he's faithful. And I want you to be reminded of that today. I don't know where you're at. I want us all to be hot, passionate, fired, glory days, Solomon, David, all that in our hearts. But we also know life isn't always that way but God is still faithful. I have some homework for you. I I know last week you didn't get any. You're like, hey, we got no homework today. No, this week you do. Here's your homework. And this is super cheesy because I I became a a Christian in 1992. And I got rid of my my old cassette tapes of NWA and EZE and all that stuff. I know, you're like, really, you? I know, I get it, okay? But I got rid of that stuff and I began to to buy worship music, Christian music, Keith Green loved it. But one of the things I stumbled upon back in somewhere in 92, 93 as a new Christian is a song by by a guy and his son, Aaron Jeffrey, he's kind of the band or whatever, Aaron Jeffrey, but they wrote a song called He Is. And I don't know if you heard it or not, here's your homework. I want you whatever, Spotify or whatever you listen to or you can Google or whatever you wanna do to find this song, I want you to listen to it over and over and over and over this week. It's called He Is. So I know you can take notes on any of the message, but at least write that down. Put it in your phone. Aaron Jeffrey, the song He Is. And what he does is he, they, they basically, for every book of the Bible, describe who Jesus is, the theme of that book. Genesis, the breath of life. Exodus, the Passover lamb. Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, fire by night. Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. And it continues through the entire Uh, Bible, all of it. 
I just want you to listen because what that did for me way back when, I know I'm going back to my glory days of my faith and being new in Jesus, but what it did for me was help me at least get a picture of who Jesus is in each book. And it will help you, even as I talk about the pieces together, I need to be done, I'm gonna pray. Jesus, um, there's so much, and I know this, this is just a lot, but God, again, my passion really is that this giant puzzle that we call the Bible is so profound and so amazing. And I know to make it overly simplified is, is, is kind of too much sometimes, but what I see is the beauty of your love for us and your faithfulness to us, even on this roller coaster of faith that in moments can be high points and amazing and low points where we are disillusioned and we wonder. But God, I pray we would continue on the journey and that your Holy Spirit would fan into flame a passion for you, a passion for scripture, a passion for your work in our hearts. God, let hope rise up in every single heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.